I'm Pastor Bill. I'm your chaplain behind the walls at the New Hampshire State Prison. I'd like to thank Mark Warren for inviting me to speak with you today. I know he's enjoying the weekend, his 30th anniversary with Audra. So we send our love out to him and hope they have a beautiful, blessed weekend this weekend. Hey, I want to ask you this morning, how do you behave in church? How do you behave? I'm not talking to the kids, right? How do we behave in church? Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3? And no, you didn't miss a week. We're, we jumped from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Mark is going to double back and do chapter 2 next week. But if you will please go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I used to think that church should be run like a business. You know, I, when I first became a Christian, I worked in a bank. And, you know, I didn't like necessarily how church worked. You know, it was kind of casual and touchy-feely. And, you know, I, I like kind of efficiency and things should work a certain way. You know, I like the box. You know, I like everything to work inside the box. And to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, we need good accounting practices. You know, we have a, obligations to the state and to the federal government for, you know, accountability and the things that we do. But the purpose of a church is not to be efficient, you know, to not have a well-run machine necessarily, although that's a good thing. The purpose of a church is to glorify Jesus Christ, our Savior, right? We gather in his name. You know, we are connected by his spirit. So when we gather here, it's not just to be a well-oiled machine, it's to gather, to pray and to worship and to glorify our God. That's our purpose. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter to Timothy, he states the purpose of why he's writing here in chapter 3. And if you look in verse 14 in chapter 3, he reveals his purpose in writing, not just in this chapter, but in the whole letter. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church, the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, I want you to kind of consider what Paul is saying about you and me. Right? Not that just we're just gatherers here, so we don't just come here once a week and then that's it. It goes well beyond that. You know, think of your children when you raise your kids. You know, they're, they're not just in your household to feed and to, you know, to lecture to, right? To tell them how to do the right thing. No, there's a big relationship going on with your kids. And it goes well beyond just providing for needs, right? They're... You're part of your household. You're part of your household as a husband and wife and any other people that are living in your house, right? You're a family. And what Paul is doing and what is done throughout the Bible is comparing the church not to an organization as such, but to a family. So let's look at a couple of things that Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the church is his household, this is God's household that all of us are a part of. So when you read the scriptures, not just in the New Testament, but God calls us his children. God calls us his sons and daughters. 
Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. We're all connected by his spirit. You know, we're related. Jesus calls us into a relationship. Paul wrote in Ephesians how those relationships should work within our family, within our household. You know, he talks about how husbands and wives should, re should relate to each other, how we should relate to our children. And the Bible also talks about relationships that we have as brothers and sisters in the spirit of God. So we are a household and we're called family. We call each other family. We call this a church family. And we're not related by blood. Once again, we're related by the Spirit. And today is Pentecostal Sunday, where most people believe that this is the church birthday, if you will, when God poured out His Spirit so that He now dwells in us and we're connected in that way. So we're more than just an assembly, more than just a gathering. We are truly a family in Christ. Christ connected us. We are one in Him. And we all have a role to play. We're all family members. There's nobody here that's unimportant. There's nobody here that shouldn't be here, that doesn't belong here. We all belong here. Because Jesus called us to be together. I didn't call you to be here. Your neighbor didn't call you. He may have invited you to be here, but your neighbor didn't call you to be here. Jesus himself called you to be here. A lot of people think that the church was man-made, but that's not true. This is Jesus' assembly. Jesus called the church to gather. Jesus said that I will create my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're here because Jesus calls us to gather. The next time somebody tells you, I'm not going to church because I don't like organizations. Well, Jesus is the one you have a problem with because he's the one who called us to gather in his name, right? We don't like necessarily some of the man-made rules that people sometimes abuse, and that, that is bad. That is, we have to be vigilant, and we're going to talk about that uh, later as we kind of go through the rest of the chapter here. But the very basis for us being together is not man-made. It's God-centered. It's God-created. It's God-mandated by his son. So we are a household. We are called to gather and be together as family. So as we gather, look at the person next to you. That really, literally is your brother and your sister. We don't live in the same house, but we are a household. But someday we're going to live in the same house. When Jesus calls us home, we are going to be living in the same house. One house. One dwelling place with our God forever, Amen. all right? So let's get to know each other, <laughs> right? Let's get to know each other because we're gonna be living together for a long time, a very long time, right? If you don't like the church, you're not gonna like heaven. <laughs> so start seeing the good side of who you're sitting next to. Second thing that Paul mentions in here is that we are the church of the living God. You know, Pentecostal Sunday. God doesn't dwell in a building anymore. He hasn't dwelt in a building in 2,000 years. Right? God dwells in us. We just had, in the prison, we just had this thing called a Kairos weekend. 
And there's an interrogative that we do during the weekend. It says, who is the church? We are the church. You know it. Yeah. We are the church. Hey, who is the church? We are the church. We are the church. God lives in us to work in us and work through us and walk with us, shine in us, speak through us, speak to us to give us love and wisdom and his presence all the time. I love what you said, Victoria. David longed for what we have. People for thousands of years have been waiting for what we have and we, we're so casual. But we are the church. God lives in us. We are the temple. Peter spoke about it. We are the stones, the very stones that God builds, making his church. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. He's our God, right? It's an exciting thought. We belong to God, literally. He dwells in us. And his spirit is his seal on our very soul that we belong to him. That's why you don't have, you don't have to worry about falling away. Right? God never breaks a promise. He will bring you to heaven when you receive him. When you receive him, you are born again. Can anyone be unborn? No, you cannot be unborn. God bears you, makes you his son, dwells in your spirit. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You're going. You're going. And finally, he says that you are a pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, this is a, an amazing, wonderful, like scary thought, statement that uh, Paul is making, that we have the responsibility for truth in this world. You know, that God makes the church the repository for everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus said. God's truth is given to us to preach and proclaim and to protect. You guys look at the news, look at all the lies and philosophies that are going on in the world, the lies that people are being told every day. Well, God has entrusted us with the truth. Us. You have the truth. You have the truth in you. God has made you his ambassador in the world his representative in the world, keeping the truth alive until he returns. I once heard Andy Stanley preach that the closest anyone is going to be in the presence of God in this world is when they're in the presence of the church. How scary is that? But what about when the church is not being the church? What hope does any person have if they're seeking the Lord, if we are not being his household. Now that's one of the problems that Paul was writing to Timothy about in the church at Ephesus. The church was messed up. I mean, it was royally messed up. In fact, Paul had been at Ephesus several years before and he was kind of saying goodbye to them. He was on his way to Jerusalem from after his third missionary journey. And he met with the elders. The last time he was there, it ended in a riot. So he met with the elders of Ephesus outside the city. 
And he said, I want you to be shepherds and I want you to be careful because once I leave, wolves are going to descend and they're going to try to steal away your people. And even those from among you are going to try to make followers to follow them and not God. And several years later, that's exactly what happened. So Paul sent Timothy as his representative. He couldn't make it directly there. And he sent Timothy, as we saw in chapter 1, and he said, command those people to stop teaching false doctrine, to stop teaching lies. And as we get into chapter 3 here, I'm going to go back up to verse 1. Paul is implementing his solutions, telling Timothy how to fix this. So he says in verse 1, he says, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. So wanting to be an overseer, an overseer is like a pastor or an elder or a bishop. Wanting to be a leader is a good thing. Right? Most of the time, it's a good thing. It depends on why you want it. Now it says that Someone desires a noble task. Some translators, instead of saying noble task, it says a noble work. Right? So being an elder is not just a title or a ceremonial position. It's a, it's a job. It's a work. It has duties and responsibilities and accountability. It's not just an age marker where, you know, you're old now, so you're an elder. That's... That's not what this is. It's not something where, you know, you want to be recognized in the congregation. So, you know, you, you read a lot and you're, you just want to be called an elder. It's not what Paul's talking about. What's noble is when you have a heart where you want to preach and teach and bring people along in maturity because that honors God. That glorifies God. When you see needs in people and needs in the church and you... You know, you see God calling you and, and saying, you know, I can do that. I can do that. And we can move forward. We can bring people in here and so that they can see the true God. That's a noble work. So Paul starts describing what types of leaders do we want in our church? You know, what types of leaders belong in leadership? And he describes two types of leaders. He calls them, you know, overseers, elders, pastors, uh, those types of leaders and deacons and the elders you know are like keepers of the word if you will ministers of the word and deacons are the hands and feet they lead those ministries so pastors and teachers you know they make sure that the truth is being is reigning in the church that we're staying on course that we're evangelizing that we're protecting the church from false doctrine deacons are the ones that are leading the care of the church. So you might think of it as uh, uh, elders are servant leaders and deacons are leading servants. All right? And these, this is not a new structure either. When you think back to Acts, Acts uh, 6, where the apostles are saying, hey, you know, we're getting really busy. You know, we can't just keep coming out here and helping people the way we are. There's too many people, so let's take some people from among us and let's let them do the service work so that we can devote ourselves to ministry of the word and prayer. 
And Moses also was advised to do that. Moses was wearing himself down. So his father-in-law told him, well, look, don't do this by yourself. He said, find some men that you can trust, good men that you can trust to help you manage all the things that you're doing. And what these all have in common is that, and as we read through some of these, I don't have time to read through all of them, but some of these qualifications for leadership, none of them have anything to do with talent. Not a one. There's one possibly, but I would make the argument that just like the others, it has to do with character. Right? Character. Because that's what God cares about. Character. When I first started coming here, one of the messages, that was 10 years ago, one of the messages I still remember from Pastor Peter is that when your talent exceeds your character, disaster follows. And I've seen that play out over and over in my Christian life. I mean, how many in my own life personally too, I've got to admit it. How many ministries have we seen disappear? Right? How many pastors fall? You know, how many people just never come back? You know, we had a split in our own church years ago. And it was contentious. And it was hurtful. It didn't have to happen that way. It could have been done differently and still have the same result. But for some reason, it was contentious. We can all fail and fall short. And as Paul lists these character qualities, you know, we, we can't measure up perfectly to all of them. When I, was, when, I first, when I was a young Christian, I read these and I thought, wow, when I go to church, I need to lay low <laughs> because I wasn't even close. I wasn't even close. My life was a mess, right? My life was a mess. I, I couldn't, there's no way. And I thought, I'll just sit in the pew and listen. But over time, when you give yourself to the Lord, he's going to help you. So if you read these and you say, wow, I'm just going to slouch in and slouch out. Don't worry. If you're a young Christian or you're going through something, God is going to work in you because he lives in you. So let's go through a few of these. In passage two, it says, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband above, of one wife. That's not as relevant today, but you know they had uh, uh, polygamy was common. But for us, that's you know being devoted to one woman, right? If you're married, then you have your wife. Period. No affairs, no playing around. One woman, right? You are married, and that's it. Being above reproach, that just means that no one has an accusation, a credible accusation that they can throw at you. And so if you're going, if you're a church leader, there's no one that's going to pop out of the woodwork and say, I saw him, you know, you know, you know, in the bar last night. He was so, he was so great. He was the life of the party and he fell over the, you know, fell over the table, you know, but those types of being above reproach just means that you're, you're not doing, going out doing ridiculous things. This is not like a, an unattainable standard. You're just a respectable person that doesn't go out and not doing crazy things that you would expect a Christian to not be doing, right? 
Someone self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and here, able to teach. Now, able to teach is not just a gift, the gift of teaching. This is, do you have the knowledge and the credibility to teach? So if I am going out getting drunk every night, you know, do I have the credibility to be a teacher in the church? Or am I living such a life that I have some weight when I teach? Okay? Being able to teach, am I living in such a way that when I teach, people look and say, oh, you know, uh, I know that he's saying something true because that's what he does. And some of these, these are not high standards, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, right? We can all do that. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, which is really important. If money's important to somebody, if somebody's greedy, if somebody puts their own needs above the needs of others, then that's obviously someone who needs to work on themselves before they're qualified for leadership. Can't give somebody a big pile of money if we can't trust them with the money, right? And that's happened to churches. In fact, we just had a big church disappear because of financial management. And we don't know why, but we can see that there was something not right going on there. And he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And this also is not perfection. A lot of families today, a lot of you are single parents, you know, blended families. What it's saying here is, are you managing your family competently? You know, there are things that are out of your control, but are you approaching it in a godly way? You know, what are you doing in managing your family? Are you loving your family? Are you present? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you using godly uh, solutions to the complex problems that you're going through? And he says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he care for God's church? Remember, this is a household, right? We're not dealing with employees here. We're dealing with people, family. So if you're struggling managing a family at home, you're not ready to manage a church family. But again, this is a learning process. Maybe you're at a place, not yet at a place to do that. But as you walk with the Lord, I don't know what God's plans are for you. Maybe you'll be a pastor if that's your desire. Maybe you'll be an elder or a missionary. I don't know. But I know that all things are possible with God. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Amen. If you're new and ambitious, I can testify that you need to wait. Okay? Because I made so many mistakes and I hurt people because I was very driven when I first became a Christian. I knew nothing. I knew a couple of key verses and I ran people over sometimes. And I praise God that I didn't pay a higher cost for some of my ambition. He said he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace. He's talking about hypocrisy, right? Christians, people aren't going to agree with you, but you need to have a good reputation, a good testimony. You got to be the same person out there that you are in here, right? The same person at home that you are at work that you are here. The same person when you go out at night same person that you are here. The same person with your family that you are with this family. All right. 
Otherwise, you're going to bring repute on the whole church. And deacons are very similar. So I'm not going to go into the deacons because all these, you can get the picture here of what's going on. And here's the tie. There's nothing in there that isn't expected of all Christians. When you read all through those qualifications, is there anything in there that God isn't already calling you to do? Not a single one. What we need to all do is to work to, towards those standards. That's where Jesus is bringing us. All of us. God is calling all of us to be like him. And that's where these standards come from. These are not relative standards, by the way. These are not standards that come from a business manual. They come from our Savior. Because we're called to be transformed. Right? To reject the way the world does things and to be transformed by the way Jesus does things. And I want to end with the end of this chapter here, starting in verse 16. Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Now, we live in a, in a privileged time, a blessed time, because it's been revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, right? It was a mystery to every generation before that. Everyone was waiting for what was going to happen for thousands of years what was God going to do? How is he going to change everything? When is he going to come? We live in an age where we know that Jesus is a savior. The mystery of God has been revealed. That God loves us. We thought that God was out to get us. That we were sinners. That God hated us and couldn't wait to get his hands on us. But the mystery is this. That God sent his son so that we could know that he loves us that he sent his son to die for us and that he wants us to be part of his household. Amen. That is a celebration. That is the mystery of godliness, that Jesus came to save sinners and he came to take your sin upon the cross, not only as a way of disposing of your sin, but as a message to you that when he died on that cross, you could know that because he lives that you also will live. Paul writes that he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, and was preached among the nations. We believed on, he was believed on in the world and was taken up into glory. And when he returns to us, we're going to be taken up to glory with him. Amen. Right? Our household is going to be made complete, and we will be living with our God. We should all aspire to leadership in some way, whether it's just working with a couple of people or maybe even a church. And one of my favorite passages is in Matthew uh, 28 where Jesus just reveals that he's going to be crucified to his disciples. So one of the, two of the disciples' mothers, James and John, approach Jesus with their mother. And mom asks, hey, Jesus, I, I know you're going like, to be crucified and all that, but my two sons here, could one of them stay on your left and one on your right when you get to the kingdom? And Jesus explains, well, it's going, to be a, it's going to be a rough walk. And then the other disciples hear about what these guys did. And Jesus settles the situation. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The Gentiles have power and they lord it over everyone like a tyrant. 
but not so among you. Whoever wants to be greatest among you must be your slave. I want to encourage you that if you seek leadership, it's a noble work. But the starting point is surrender to Jesus daily, to walk with him daily, and let him transform you. God will lead you. God will lead you exactly where he intended you to be if you trust him with your future. Let's pray. Holy Father, we're so grateful that the mystery of all time has been revealed in this generation that Jesus Christ has come, that you love us, that you have saved us, that if we put our trust in you, put ourselves in your hands, that we will live in your household forever. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that doesn't have a relationship with you, that this will be the day that they say, I want to be part of your household, Lord. I want to be with you forever. I pray, Father, that in the cry of their heart, if this is it, that they will know your presence and further, that they will talk to someone to let them know that how, can they, how they can be part of this family today as a first step. And now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much for watching us online. We're so glad that you joined us. We trust that Jesus has spoken to your heart and you've been challenged by his word. If you'd like to know more information about Grace Capital Church, please visit us at gccnh.com. We'll see you next time. <music>